Good morning. morning. Great to be with you today. Chris was giving that announcement about Syria and and all that is going on there, and and, uh, I pulled him over. I said, we're on the ground in Bekaa Valley this morning. Uh, It's now afternoon there, but uh, our own Sam Naman, who's a part of our church, is there uh, surveying the refugee status right now. And as I was thinking of that and then heard that beautiful song as the two guys played it, I just so, I've been in that tent city. I've been with those dear people and I so want them to know the presence of God. I want them to know God's love. We want you to know and experience the overwhelming love of God. Question, when, and I'm sure it has happened, Have you experienced overwhelming love? My friend Dave, who usually goes to the first hour, was telling me that a couple weeks ago he was taking care of his two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, and then she came up to her grandpa, and she says, Hug! And he grabs her up into his arms, and and he said, And she, Lon, she just cuddled right into my shoulder and when I thought she'd want to let go she wasn't finished yet he was feeling overwhelming love you hear us use the word grace all the time in this church that's what grace is grace is the never-ending overwhelming love of God never-ending overwhelming love of God. Have you experienced it from God? I I always go back to this story. I will until the day I die. My first time of being flooded by the overwhelming love of God is as I laid in a hospital at age 20 with a bleeding ulcer. They'd found the source of the ulcer and surgeons had taken care of that problem but three weeks in the hospital and I was, I was deeply, deeply distressed as a person. Why? Because something was going on in me much more crippling than an ulcer. It was crippling guilt. It was seven years earlier when on a beautiful day in May, my little brother whom I was supposed to be watching and didn't found his way into our backyard, fell into our swimming pool, and died. And I carried for seven years the guilt that I was responsible for my little brother, and he was gone. A youth pastor came to visit me in that hospital, and he said, what's really wrong with you? And I just started weeping and weeping and weeping, the shame and the guilt that I felt that I'd carried for seven years. And then he marvelously Help me see Jesus hanging on the cross. And then he marvelously, with God's gift in him, helped me to hear Jesus saying, Father, forgive him. He knows not what he's done. I was flooded with the overwhelming, forgiving love of God. My shame was gone. I experienced freedom for the first time in seven years. That's what the Christian message does. You say, well, why are you going here? I'll tell you why. I can't understand why the church of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts was unstoppable. I don't get it. There's a verse 
from, uh, uh, we're going to put it up here right now. It comes from Colossians 1.6, where Paul's summarizing. He says, the gospel is bearing fruit. It's growing throughout the whole world. They couldn't stop it. I loved our first song, I won't stop, I won't stop. I won't. They couldn't stop. What makes that happen? Why, within 300 years, was half the Roman Empire converted to Jesus Christ? And my best hunch is because they personally were so overwhelmed with the love of God that they had to make other people know. It's the only explanation I can come to. I mean, don't, don't you find this about your life? When you experience something that's really, really good, right? You want other people to know all about it. Take In-N-Out Burger, for instance. How <laughs> that's what we call an abrupt transition, Mike. Yeah. How many of you have ever heard of In-N-Out Burger? It's a West Coast phenomenon. They are the best hamburgers in the whole world. About 10 years ago, I was in San Francisco with my dear friend Jerry Root. We were on a riding retreat. He takes me through Fisherman's Wharf, through Garrett Square, and he says, Lon, have you had the animal style in and out burger? That's where they grill the onions and let them drip on the burgers. I go, no, oh, you've got to. So we go, and I eat it. Chris told me today, you can now get monkey style. Yeah, that's where they not only drip the grilled onions on it, but even the french fries are on the burger. Have you ever had it? Oh! Chris won't let me go to California anymore without guaranteeing that I've gone to In-N-Out Burger so that I let him know through a picture and he gets jealous. Look at this one. Okay, there I am. That's Palm Springs, and there it is, the In-N-Out Burger sign right there. I'm so excited about In-N-Out Burger that when I take somebody to California, you know, we usually go for other things, Christian reasons. <laughs> but I took Will Franco, who's, who's going to be our first campus pastor, incidentally, uh, he, he and I are going to work together next Sunday right here. But look, yep, In-N-Out Burger right there. He discovered Jesus and In-N-Out Burgers in California. <laughs> silly, silly illustration. But when you're really sold on something, you can't wait to tell it. The overwhelming, never-ending love of God makes us tell others about it. That's the only explanation I have for the early church. Now. What is this? How do, we, how do we express this overwhelming love? That's what the word the gospel is all about. The gospel is, is the message, making it known. Now watch this. I'm going to do a little kind of rhetoric deal here with you. When something great has happened, two things take place. One, the event itself. And two is the results of the event Number one, the event. Number two, the result of the events. Now, the event isn't always a point in time. It can be an era of time. Case in point, June 1977. Marie Matthews is with me on my first trip to the Holy Land. Full moon, garden tomb of the resurrection in Jerusalem. I said, I love you. And she said, I love you. 
I'm in heaven, I get carried away. I think of her and me and how it's going to be. Okay, so that's the first part of the event, all right? Three months later, stage two, Larky Park, Walnut Creek, California. I'm playing her John Denver songs on a Sunday afternoon. And I say, will you marry me? Will you marry me? She says, yes, I will. Woo! Love and marriage, love and marriage. Okay, all right, stage two. Stage three, February 3rd, 1979. We were joined together as husband and wife. That's the event, the historical event. Look at this slide. The gospel, I'm sorry, I'm rather excited today. The The gospel is both an historic event and the ongoing results. My love, engagement, and marriage is the historical events which result in three beautiful children, our first grandchild to be born, God willing, in about three weeks, and 37 years of life together where we have helped birth people spiritually here and around the world. That's the results of the event. By the way, I just want to throw in my two cents, too. For those of you that are parents or grandparents or wannabe parents and grandparents, the the, uh, conference we've got coming up next weekend, I've been assured it's going to be great if you've got little kids, if you've got uh, teenagers, if you've got adult children, the whole gamut. Uh, If you haven't signed up yet, I hope you will. But the point I really want to make in the message is that when something great takes place, there are the the events and then the results. All right, now, here I'm going to give you what were the events that lead to the results in this thing called the gospel, which changes the world. The greatest event in the history of the world is God's rescue of humanity and civilization. The greatest event in the history of the world is God's rescue of humanity and all civilization. I am not extrapolating. I am not aggrandizing what took place and what it results in is unlike anything else in the history of humankind. Here's the event rescue stages. Stage one, the life of Jesus Christ. At the right moment, Christ was born of a woman and lives as a man incarnated for 33 years. This event is a 33-year event which changes everything. Stage two in the event, the death of Christ. Therefore, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. Sin conquered. Number three, the resurrection of Christ. The angel says to the women on that Easter morning, he is not here, he has risen. Death conquered. Number three, 
Number four, the ascension of Christ. Just before he leaves the earth and rises to be with the Father in heaven, Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I am with you always, even to the end of time. Only from the ascended position at the right hand of the Father could he have authority over all in the universe. The ascension of Christ, where he now sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty as sovereign king over the universe. And number five, the fifth stage of the great event is the arrival of the Spirit. Again, just before Jesus ascends to the Father, he says, Wait right here. Remember that? Jesus says, wait. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you with great power. And so the fifth and final part of the great event was that God, the Spirit, comes and takes up residency inside humans. Okay, that's the event. When, the, reason, the reason that the gospel is so complex to so many of us is because there's so much that goes into it. But just see it this way for me from now on. You have the historical event in those five stages, and then the results that it unleashes are immense and amazing. If you would, open your Bibles, please, to the second chapter of Acts. Second chapter of Acts. Four results of the events. Four results of the great event of the Christ. 33 years is all, and it changes everything, past, present, and future, in our lives, in this world, and even the universe. Chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Now, in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, it's the end of the first great speech of Peter and verses 36 through 39, and I read. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, the great verse 38, one of the great verses of all Scripture, Acts 2.38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. That's why this gospel will spread to the world. All whom the Lord our God will call. Okay, keep your Bibles open right there. Acts 2, 37 through 39. But especially verse 38. Everything I'm going to say now is loaded into that one verse, verse 38. Incidentally, it's one of the great passages. Okay, I'm going to now do a canned joke. Once upon a time, there was an older woman who lived alone, whose house was broken into by a robber on an evening. She loved the Lord Jesus Christ with all 
her heart. She could hear the robber gathering things and things falling off tables. And, and in another room, she was behind a door. She was scared, and she started shouting out, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38. Finally, the robber, hearing her through the back of the door, saying, Acts 2.38, he dropped everything he was stealing. He cowered down in the corner. He goes, all right, all right, all right. She called the police. The police came. They gathered the criminal. And as they were putting him in the squad car, one of them said, why were you cowering in the corner before that old woman? He said, all she kept saying is she had an ax and 238. <laughs> That's pretty good for a canned joke. All right. Well, this is a powerful verse, okay? Yeah, this is a powerful verse. All right. Now, let me start at the end. Look what it says at the end of 39. All whom the Lord our God will call. We're going to talk about this a little more next Sunday when I'm back. But I want you to know this. What you're about to hear happen in these four results of the great event of the Christ is all because God chooses it to happen and God makes it happen. God calls. God draws people to himself. There's one verse in Acts where it says, all those who were appointed for salvation believed. And so you've got to understand in this process that has occurred in many of our lives and that we're praying is going to occur in the life of everybody we know and love who doesn't know Jesus, it will be God-initiated because God will do the calling. When the call starts happening, four things take place. First of all, verse 38, Peter says, right after the people say, what should we do? He gives them one word, doesn't he? It's the word repent. The term is repentance. Repentance. It's a big word. It's a powerful word. It's a wonderful word. Repentance has two aspects to it, and that's why I have it on the screen for you. The first is conviction. Look at verse 37. You see it happening. Peter had preached the gospel. He had talked about sin. He had talked about Christ dying for sin, rising from the dead. Verse 37 says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the core of their hearts. This is conviction. When you are being called by God to his son Jesus Christ, that process, which may be moment in time over a process of time, one of the things that always happens is you start feeling worse about yourself than you've ever imagined. And you should. Because God is telling you the truth about how wrong we are in our lives and about the choices that we make and the thoughts that we entertain. When I was in that hospital at age 20, after uh, that pastor took me to the cross and I began to feel the freedom of the release of the guilt of seven years, that I was still in the hospital for a few days, and the Lord just started coming upon me with how deeply I had offended at least 13 people. I still remember, I had 13 people God was doing a moral inventory in my life. This is the conviction. I'd been mean to people, fellow boys and girls. By that, I mean my teenage friends, other people, my, my jealousy, my envy, my pride, 
my lawnness. And so the first result of the great event as the Holy Spirit starts to draw you, and I pray he's drawing some of you here today, is you're going to feel worse about yourself than you ever have. That's good news. <laughs> you, you, you'll begin to sense that we in the world are worse off than we ever thought. The second part of the repentance, conviction is first, the second part of the repentance is that as you sense these things, as God brings them to you, oh, and incidentally, how many of us would say, I'm still repenting almost every day? Yeah, it just keeps going on. But don't worry, it's good news. Only when you realize you've got a cancer can you get rid of the cancer, okay? So, it, it, so it, it, it happens, and the second part of it is not only do you begin to loathe all that is wrong in you, you desperately want to reject it. You want to reject the sin-filled life. You don't just feel bad about it. You feel bad about it. You say, anything that will get me out of this, and you turn from it. So it's two-pronged. It's conviction, and then it's this sense of anything that will turn me away from the absorption of myself, which only injures everyone around me. Oh, and you want to make the turn, and the Holy Spirit who's calling you is doing this too. He now moves you to turn from, to turn to the only thing that can save you. You turn to God. Now, Peter, in verse 38, he, he says it in his first phrase. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That action to be baptized, many of you have done it here in our church. We had some beautiful ones just a few weeks ago. That is the public announcement of the changing of allegiance from me to God, and I want the whole world to know about it. This conversion, is the big word we use for it, is turning away and turning to God. And baptism becomes the outward public declaration of your absolute allegiance to God to be your life from that point on. There are other terms in the scriptures that tie into this thing of the turning to God. Uh, speaking of turning, turn one page in your Bibles or scroll up or is it down? I don't know. Okay. In chapter 3, verse 19, I'll have this on the screen for you as well. In Peter's second sermon, he talks about this same conversion thing happening. So in verse 19 of chapter 3, he says, repent and then turn to God. He actually uses those words. So conviction and rejection of the sin-filled life causes me to want to turn away, and now you turn to God. Another word that the book of Acts uses all the time to express this turning to God is the word believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. In um, Acts 13.38, we see it first. Through him, everyone who believes is set free. And look at the next one, Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This turning away to turn to, the word believe, I'm putting 
I'm, I'm putting all of my trust, I'm putting my belief in Jesus Christ. So much so that Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be rescued. So, stage one, as the Spirit is calling, is that you, you, you ache for what's wrong in you and everything in you says you want to reject it and you want something else. And then stage two is you turn to God. You believe in God. You give Him your life, a new allegiance. Now that results in a beautiful thing. That results in the forgiveness of sins. Again, look at Paul in, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Peter in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for what? The forgiveness of your sins. As I laid in the hospital bed, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive him. The forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness of sins, justification. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But before we do, though, again, look at verse, uh, uh, chapter 3 again in that verse 19. <clears throat> I like the way it talks about this, the forgiveness of sins. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. <laughs> Isn't that good? Isn't that powerful, concrete, graphic, living language? So that your sins are wiped out. In another passage, the Apostle Paul gets even stronger about it. Look in chapter 13, 39, which we put on the screen. Through him, everyone who believes, there it is, the turning to God, the converting, is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain by all of your good works. So those two phrases, the, okay, you got the big picture. The forgiveness of sins is given to us. And then Paul says, uh, Peter says, and, and it's like your sins are wiped away. And then Paul says, every sin. And a justification means not just the sins you have committed even the ones you will. Woo not just the sins of the past, not just the sins of this morning, but the sins forever because you are justified by Jesus Christ. Justification, Paul uses in, in that phrase, verse 39. Set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain. It is something God does. I meant to bring a hammer today because I wanted to have a judge's gavel. And at this time, I was going to take that hammer and I was just, I'll try it just with this. Do you hear that little ring? The judge declares, not guilty. That's what justification is. That in God's eyes, you are declared not guilty. Maybe you've heard this story. Maybe you haven't. And even if you have, if it's a good story, we always get more out of it the more we hear it. Perhaps you've heard the illustration of the judge, the righteous judge, sitting in 
on his bench with his great desk in front of him wearing his judicial robes. And before him is a young man who's been charged with heinous crimes. And the witnesses have brought testimony and the young man is clearly guilty of murder. And now the judge must render his judgment. And he declares guilty as charged. You are sentenced to death. But then the judge gets up from his desk on his bench. He takes off his judicial robes. He walks down and goes and stands next to the young man and turns him and faces him eye to eye. Because the man he's just condemned is his own child. And then he says, I declare as the righteous judge that I will take the penalty of death from you. You are declared not guilty. That's a pretty good approximation of justification. Look what the great theologian Merrill Tenney says. And I, I love to use Merrill in our church whenever I can. He's passed away now, but he's the former um, dean of the, our school of theology at Wheaton. And his family still goes to our church. Justification. God declares the sinner absolved from sin, released from its penalty, and restored as righteous. Wow. I'm in awe of the overwhelming, never-ending love of God, of His grace, that He would make that choice. And Jesus, the righteous judge, takes the penalty for us. That's what the forgiveness of sins is all about. Number one, repentance. Number two, belief, turning to God in conversion. Number three, receiving the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. And number four, the reception of the Holy Spirit. It's what Peter says there for us in Acts chapter 2. Again, the great verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember when I started, I said, have you ever received the gift of overwhelming love? And then I told the story about my friend Dave and the little baby. The I, I chose the word gift there very specifically because it's here. When someone turns away from sin and turns to God in belief and receives the forgiveness of sins, along with that, they also receive God himself, the Spirit, to take up residency within the human soul. It's almost impossible to get our arms around that. 
When Jesus was talking to the, the, the great religious scholar Nicodemus, Nicodemus couldn't understand this whole thing. So Jesus finally sums it up in, in John 3, 7 and 8. He says, Nicodemus, you, it's like you need to be born again. You, you need to be born of the Spirit. St. Peter says you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Jesus says you need to be born in the Spirit. This is not theological jargon. This is not philosophical idea. This is experiential. Justification is a philosophical idea. Receiving the Holy Spirit is experiential. The gift comes, God himself. And when you surrender your life to God, you get God. And that's what Peter is saying is going to happen. It's going to happen to all who receive him. You receive Christ. I, I like in chapter 3 again, Peter's second speech, he uses a phrase, he says, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Oh, when the Spirit comes... And when I get out of myself and let the Spirit continue to fill me, when we sing that glorious song, Holy Spirit, fill this atmosphere. Uh, let us know your presence, dear Lord. Whenever that takes place, it is a glorious thing. I like what Paul Tripp says about it. I, I just read this yesterday in his wonderful devotional. He says, the life force that energizes your thoughts, your desires, your words and your action is no longer you. It's the life force. It's God the Spirit. When you come to Christ, don't feel like you have to make everything good in your life. You can't. But the Spirit starts the work. The life force energizes my thoughts, my desires, my words, my actions. I said to a dear friend this week who knows me well, I said, when I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm really something. <laughs> and then I said, and you know me well enough to know when I'm not. He does inside me what I can't do. And he does, because he has authority over heaven and earth, he does outside us what we can't do. Inside us and outside us. God the Spirit is running things. This, I didn't want to just teach the theology of the new birth today. I wanted to try to figure out why the early church was so unstoppable. And I think it's because they experienced it. I mean, my friend Dave, who's little two-and-a-half-year-old, leans into his shoulder, keeps saying to me, Lon, you can't, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. It's going to happen to you in three weeks. You're going <laughs> to... He's experienced it. Have you experienced the new birth in Jesus Christ. And if you have, are you every day saying, not my way, God, but your way, and letting the Spirit fill you over and over again? As that happens, we can't help but tell others. You say, yeah, yeah, but 
That was the first century not happening here. Wrong. That's Times Square. That's the summer of 2015. That's Luis Palau. I was with Luis's sons this week. I didn't even know that this had happened. Summer 2015, New York City, one of the most amazing campaigns in evangelism history. The good news of Jesus Christ was broadly shared and the groundwork was laid for evangelism and caring for years to come. 1,700 churches partnering together. 14,000 trained volunteers. 180,000 people heard the good news of Jesus Christ face to face. 1.4 million heard the good news of Jesus Christ through social media. 10,000 human beings turned from darkness to the light of Jesus Christ. New York City, 2015. Sixty regional groups of Christians from three states formed action-caring organizations against sex trafficking, domestic abuse, homelessness, poverty. As the mayor of New York City said, you are showing how much communities of faith com uh, contribute to civic life. It's going on everywhere today. I know why. Because once you experience it, you've got to tell. Pray with me. And so our Father, Son, Spirit of holiness, we who have experienced the first fruits, who have been called by you, who have repented, who have turned to you, who have experienced the forgiveness of sins and now daily experience the presence of God in us. Oh Lord, make us unstoppable. Amen and amen.